Welcome to The Quantified Body. This is your host, Damien Blinkinsop. This is the show where we look at tools and tactics to improve your body's health, its performance, and its longevity. And we do it with a quantified perspective, always looking for data, such as biomarkers, for real evidence that what we're doing is not a waste of time. We have guests that range from scientists and researchers in all of the tools, the tactics, and the biomarkers to people who are real-life experimenters who are going out and doing this as self-experiments, and they're tracking the biomarkers to show their results. Just this last week, I put up a new page on the quantified body, which is a bit of a glimpse into what is to come in the future, what I'm planning for you all. It's called the Tools and Tactics page, and the purpose is to make this a resource for you to find the tools that you need to meet your body and mind goals, whatever that is. And that's where the quantified body is going. It's going to be more of a resource as time goes on. You can go check out this new page. I'd love to hear your feedback on it. Go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash tools. Check it out and let me know if that's useful. And now to today's episode. We've looked at some tools and tactics to improve our mental performance. So an example was brain training, for example, or TDCS. We looked at brain training uh, just recently with Adrian Owen in episode 27. If you're like me, you do many things or experiment with things to perform better mentally. That's to say, in the morning, one of the first things I do is I drink coffee. Sometimes I take nootropics. Sometimes I focus on my sleep. And a lot of this is because I really want to be able to think and be at the top of my mental performance and think with clarity because it really gives me a great day. But there's an issue here. How do we know that these things are paying off beyond the fact that they make us feel good? We could just be misleading ourselves into wasting time on some of the latest mental performance enhancing fad, and which may just be proven to have little or no benefit. So in episode 27 with Adrian Owen, we touched on how to assess the brain with the Cambridge Sciences battery of tests. The issue with those tests is, I mean, they're okay to do once, once say a year, But actually, it's quite a long battery of tests. It takes you like from tens of minutes to an hour to get those done. So it's really not convenient. It's not very accessible. It's not very usable on a daily basis if we just want to know if this caffeine or this coffee has helped us out or not. And because of that, the reality is we're just not going to do it. We're not going to use these kinds of tools. So after that episode, I set out to look for something that was more accessible and more usable. And what I was looking for was something that was very time efficient. I could get done in 30 seconds, a minute, or you know, a couple of minutes each day, because that's really what it comes down to. Is it going to use a lot of time, or is it really something very quick we can do, nearly on automatic if possible? And I found something that was pretty useful. I found something called the quantified mind. And it's become my go-to tool for assessing if something's working for me or if it's not. And it just takes like a couple of minutes, really, if I'm just testing to see the effect of something and making sure that I'm getting some little bump in performance. One of the people behind this tool is Yoni Donner. He's a bit of a like-minded soul to me, I'd say. He's really into radical life extension. He doesn't like wasting a minute of his life. Um, And he's into better living through science and data. And he really likes to make sure that if he's putting some time into something, it's really giving those benefits, that mental performance benefit in this case. So he conceived, designed, and leads the Quantified Mind project. It's a sort of collaboration between him and Nick Winter, a developer, and Stephen Coslin, professor of psychology at Stanford University. And Yoni is currently working on artificial intelligence at Google. If you're interested in improving your mental performance, this is a really key interview to check out just because we go into all the details of how to track it with a minimum of effort. We're talking about things like the minimal test you could do each day in the morning to show if you're gaining ground or you're losing ground. We talk about some of the experiments at the Quantified Mind. They lead group projects and experiments, and and Yoni talks about some of the results that they've got out of those, which points out some of the things we should probably prioritize if we want to test them out, because if they work for a whole bunch of people, it's more likely that they'll have a positive impact on us also. So this is a fun interview, and it really lays the groundwork for you to start improving your own mental performance. As usual, to download the transcript and get the show notes and the biomarkers and all the stuff we talk about as usual and the links to the guest, Yoni Donner, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes, pick this episode out and get it all there. 
If you want to get all of that in a newsletter every time an episode comes out, you just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and it shall arrive in your email inbox as you so wish. Now let's meet Mr. Yoni Donner. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hey, Yoni, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Great. So before we got into it, I wanted to hear a little bit about how you first got involved in your interest area. How did the quantified mind come about? Was this a mini project? Was it something you were interested in at first doing for yourself? Yeah, so it started with a pretty different context. I always wanted to cure aging since I was pretty young. Nice. And I, I still do. Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> uh, it turned out to be a somewhat more difficult problem. But no, the original thought was that there are perhaps the most accessible part of aging that we can start working on is, is the aging of the brain, especially since that sort of leads everything else. And there were all of these reports of things that might be useful. And, and since I had lots of friends who were interested in this, and they often annoyed me when they massively consumed blueberries because they thought it would help. I really looked for some scientific backing of, of all of these potential interventions. And it turned out that there isn't actually much. So most of the stuff that goes into the newspapers is, is completely not validated. And we wanted to do it ourselves. So I just looked at what, what can science tell us about how to measure cognitive performance. And it turns out that they, they've been very good at measuring the differences between people, but they've done almost nothing to measure the intra-individual variation. So it's very hard to compare a person to themselves under many different conditions for several reasons. So the tests were not built for this purpose at all. So it's you kind of have to adapt them to make them test the person several times. And also they're very inefficient. So sometimes you take a long time to get the data or you'd need a psychologist to, to get the data for you. And it was a disappointing uh, finding that I realized I, I just, if I really want it done, I have to build it myself. Especially since I have never really enjoyed building websites or anything of that kind. I really just like analyzing data and, and writing uh, over-convoluted algorithms. But with some help from some friends in the first stages, uh, we got this going. And since then, it has actually been mostly used for other purposes, namely for people to test more acute interventions rather than long-term processes. And that's fine. Whatever is, is useful is great. So I guess you're using it for the long... Are you still using it for the aging? Like, I guess you want to maintain or you want to improve over time your brain responses? Well, so there are several stages. The first one is simply to validate that we can accurately track the process of cognitive decline. Right? This would be the control. Once that is established, we want to start looking at the most promising interventions. So whether they, they be all kinds of physical exercise or, or even drugs, although I'm not generally a huge fan of drugs simply because they seem to have more side effects than positive effects. But yeah, so we did make some progress Actually, only the last year, I finally managed to get uh, some collaborators to recruit subjects and do a longitudinal little study of within-person aging. So that is all very new. Now Now this is at the stage of uh, trying to get more resources for a slightly longer pilot study. Because this was sort of to establish the methods and, and verify that we get clean data and so on. What I can say is we, we definitely have seen on the data that's been collecting randomly with people who opted in to provide their age, the, the very classical effects of aging are very, very clearly seen. So at least in that sense, it, all, all of the stuff that we've known has been replicated. But now it, it, I mostly rely on working with uh, researchers who can actually do the interventions. So it would be great, for example, to do a caloric restriction study in humans, right? Right, right, and see if that has an impact. But I'm guessing you're going to have to do this over five years or, or something to see anything significant. So that, that is a great question. So the whole point was to not wait five years. So Quantified Mind was built to be so precise that we could actually see effects given a reasonable sample size with a much shorter amount of time. Because obviously no single individual will reliably show a decline over two months, even if they're you know, over 70, over 80 years old, right? But it's an average effect that is quite strong. So there is some effect size that you could say over a month of your life, there is an average decline. It's probably very, very small compared to, for example, random daily variation. 
But that's why if you have a sufficiently large number of measurements, you could actually see that. And and I have a lot of data by now about the accuracy of at least how well QM measures uh, the actual observability. So the reliability of, of the test is actually very, very high. And you got almost zero noise in the measurement itself. So you're, you're just fighting against the noise in, in the actual cognitive function, right? So, so really people would vary from day to day more than they would... Uh, <laughs> on average over a month but that's fine since we average over that eventually with enough data right right. well this is really cool because i didn't know that this was the the original purpose of it and actually this is what i've been interested in lately i've been interested in like mild cognitive impairment they talk about like cognitive decline and um, i've actually had some scans showing some kind of nasty structural changes due to something i went through a couple of years ago so i want to kind of repair that and get it back up to speed. So it's one of the reasons I've... When you're saying anti-aging, you really think about the brain. I've also thought that, for me, the two areas that seem most important to me are energy in the brain, right? Brain so that we can carry on thinking and walking around. And if you don't have energy, you really can't get stuff done either. Because once your productivity is gone, you can't work on any of this stuff. Yeah, that's, it's true. That was actually, what you said now is an almost exact quote from the first talk that I gave in proposing this project in an AG conference. Like, four or five years ago. Oh, wow. Cool. So yeah, completely agreed on this. I don't Well, you love to tell me afterwards about the uh, anti-aging conferences. I don't know, like, are there, are there any good ones you like or prefer? Because I'm sure the audience is interested in this stuff too. That one was, I don't know if it's still going on. I haven't seen anything about this in a while, but it was called the Personalized Life Extension Conference. It was run by Christine Peterson, who now does Foresight, or maybe she doesn't even do that anymore. It was very cool. I, I got a slot there to just propose this this project that was not even close to existing yet. <laughs> it was just an idea, but I put on a spiel of like all, all of my uh, belief in why we need a new tool and what's the problem with existing measurements. And I have to say, at least I got one thing in my life kind of right that I, I did build it exactly the way that I proposed it. But it was nice. I got to talk to Peter Thiel about this right after my talk, and oh, awesome! He set me up with was one of his people to actually discuss funding for the project of course that never materialized because i'm not a business person so i, ne- I never follow up on business talks <laughs> yeah well, it's, it's, it's a great intro though peter till that's, that's quite a big name might come in useful to you later maybe with the tool so i'd like to talk about what kind of future plans that you have for the tool uh, later but for now could we take a step back because you've said that this tool is quite different to a lot of the others out there and some of the ones when I contacted you, I was thinking about is things like the, we had Adrian Owen who developed the Cambridge Brain Sciences set of tests. If you know those, we had him on the uh, podcast a little while ago. They, they got really famous uh, from publishing in Nature. <laughs> publishing in, right, in, with the study which showed that brain training wasn't effective. Was it that one or, or something else? That may have been that. There was one study that was really famous that I think Adrian Owen was the first author on. Yeah, it might have been that one. Anyway, so, and then there's CamTab, which is supposedly the best validated tool. So is the reason it's not relevant to use CamTab is because it's looking at the differences between people rather than a person in time, like as you explained earlier? Uh, Well, so each of the existing tools has uh, some subset of features and some that are not. So I I guess I should be more clear. There have been mainly three axes of scaling that Quantified Mind is supposed to provide that have not been existing altogether in existing tools. So one of them is, is just something that allows you scalability across experiments. So it's very easy for a researcher to just set up a new experiment and get a very validated and standardized set of, of tests and tools for analysis. So part of this is, for example, providing easy access to the entire raw data through APIs, rather than doing things like, ran, like randomizing subjects into groups or very easily controlling how the, the experiment is applied. And I also provide all kinds of... Uh, algorithms for making data analysis easier and detecting outliers very reliably and things of this sort. So this helps scale across experiments. And then there's the within-person component, which simply was optimized uh, to begin with in this test. So all the tests have, have been adapted to be very, very efficient and to be completely repeatable. So you can, and when I say completely, I mean, you could even take the test one billion times if you wanted to, and it would still be effective. Not only that, it would be more effective because the practice effects uh, get weaker over time. Mm. That's something I guess we should highlight for people is a lot of these tests, you can get better at them over time. So there's what you call the practice effect or the training effect. Right. Um, and in this case, because you want to see if there's decline or improvement, you wanted to eliminate that. So you're saying in like in these tests, there's not very much of that, as I understand it. 
after you've played it a few times or one of the tests you've, you've done it a few times, there's not much change in terms of practice or training effect. Yeah, that's generally true. I also have precise, more precise data on all of the tests uh, of exactly the practice magnitude. In the worst case, it takes about five sessions to get it down to manageable levels. By that, I mean that it's smaller than most of the hypothetical effect sizes that we're interested in measuring, such as time of day variation and so on. But I do have exact decompositions of the variance for all the tests. I got all of this data for my thesis. So a lot of tests don't even have practice effects at all, right? For example, reaction time tests are almost zero. And yeah, one way is, is if you can extrapolate the practice effect and eliminate it. But I think it is generally better not to make any model-based assumptions and not to fit additional parameters. So if it's possible for any experiment to start with a few practice sessions and just sort of get this out of the way. Right, right. Yeah, so in practice, someone should do those tests maybe a few times, a few days in a row, and then they could consider that now baseline. Right, yeah. So that's a protocol that we follow on, on most experiments now. Sort of like four or five practice sessions before. Mm -hmm. Does it have to be the same day, or could you just spread those out over a week or something? Generally, I, I would say sp <laughs> spreading them is a little bit better, but it's kind of insignificant next to just the value of doing them at all. So often with this kind of thing, I think it's better to make sure that just people do them and not to be too strict about rules because they will just result in losing subjects and right, right, or they, right. they wouldn't do it at all. Excellent, excellent. And then there's like, I just wanted to bring up the other tools and, and see how it compares in your mind to it. There's Lumosity and there's Brain HQ, Posit Science. How does your tool compare to those? Yeah, so Lumosity are, uh, we actually became good friends when, when I built Quantified Mind and we talked about this a little bit and we, we really like each other because we are completely complementary and non-competing at all because they are focused on brain training and also on user acquisition. Obviously, the whole thing is a big game and they're huge and they make something that appeals to everyone. Like I think we joked about this the other day, like almost everyone's mother plays Lumosity. That is very different. They, they don't do a very precise measurement instrument, but they do try to make arguments about brain training. And they're very, very good about the gamification effect and user retention and, and so on. Quantified Mind is completely focused on, on being a precise measurement tool and even more so a research instrument. So that's, that's a very different focus. But I should say, I, I just published a paper with Lumosity uh, last month that, that used their data, since they still have a lot more of it, about human learning dynamics. So that was a lot of fun. I mean, mostly I, I did the whole research and they provided their amazing data, but it was a, a great experience just collaborating with the VP of R&D there is a great guy. Yeah, cool. And as I understand it, Brain HQ Posit Science is pretty much the same as Lumosity, but just smaller. Yeah, I think that there are subtle differences of like, Posit do seem more focused on, on, on some pathologies or specific kinds of improvement. Lumosity more appeal to the general public. Great. And what's your opinion on the whole brain training area? Like I said, we had Adrian Owen on and, you know, he talked about his study where they tested a lot of people in the UK and they found no effects at all after they've been doing some, some training for a while with their Cambridge Brain Sciences uh, test. Do you have an opinion on it? I think it's very hard to just put a binary result or to say for sure brain training does not work at all, but we should, I think if we consider what work should mean to a reasonable person, we can kind of conclude this question anyway, because for something to work, it needs to have not just a non-zero effect size, but also an effect size that's big enough to be worth the effort. And even if you do something like dual and back every day, and let's suppose you even improve your working memory in the general transferable sense, all the results that we have so far, even the most optimistic ones, right, even the ones that say it works, show a pretty small effect size. And it still takes a lot of your time and I think a lot of your energy. Like, uh, for example, people told me on Quantified Mind there is a single NBEC test, which is not even as, as horribly annoying as the dual NBEC one. And people still said they, they fight with their uh, significant others after doing this. <laughs> and so, on. so it drains a lot of willpower. It drains a lot of energy right, to do those right. things. And you get a very tiny effect in the end. So I think if you are dedicated enough to do something good for your brain, there is nothing in the literature right now that comes even close to physical exercise. And this has been documented so many times. So I'd say, like, do some effort to clean up your diet. I don't know, ditch the caffeine addictions, but keep using it in small amounts, something like this, sleep well, and exercise a lot. And it'll be a much better use of your time than brain training. Of course, brain training is just appealing to people who, who like playing video games, right? So it seems like if you like uh, doing these kind of engaging things with, with your computer, then you just don't suffer that much. 
but it's still very time consuming and the effects are quite small, even according to the most optimistic results. Right. I went for a phase of using Lumosity and I came to the conclusion that it was just a huge sink of my time and it, w- it wasn't really providing any benefits. But what I did notice was like when I was sick, I would get a huge crash in my data. So that was interesting. But the amount of time required to play the games is a lot. When you've been playing it for a while, like the games tend to start taking a long time. Like some of them are taking, I felt like it was 10 minutes and that was just too much time at the beginning of the day I was doing it for this. So that's one of the things that attracted me to Quantified Mind because you said you had a focus on keeping it efficient and minimal. Um, before we get into that, I just wanted to point out something you just said. You were saying the willpower, it drains the willpower. It sounds like we, we've both been thinking about willpower quite a lot and how that impacts. Could you, could you explain what you meant in a bit more detail when you were saying that doing these kinds of tests could drain willpower and that could have impacts on the rest of your life, right? Yeah, well, so I don't want to say things that are too conclusive in a field that I'm not an expert in, but I mentioned actually did, there was a, a master's student who did his, his uh, thesis project with Quantified Mind on exactly the thing called ego depletion, which is highly related to willpower. So ego depletion is, for example, when, when I give you like a Stroop test and then you are more uh, likely to eat a cookie after, right? <laughs> because so some hypothesis could be that it drains your willpower, right? And it definitely looks this way with, with the quantified mind test. So we actually did an interesting experiment where we gave people a 20-minute long Stroop test, which is, is really torture. And you can definitely see that, that people just cannot, even within the test itself, like within those 20 minutes, they cannot maintain their ability to answer the, the difficult trials. So you can divide the test to, say, easy, moderate, and, and hard trials. It's a pretty rough division. And you can definitely see that they keep getting the easy ones correct, but there are points where they just collapse and, and they start messing up the hard ones. That's a matter of endurance? Like the longer you've been doing it? So we, we didn't or... get uh, longitudinal data on this, unfortunately. So we don't know if the same people got better like the second time they did the 20. I, I meant in terms of if you've been uh, doing the test for 10 minutes versus one minute, was there an endurance effect in terms of willpower, potentially? Yeah, so that was the main hypothesis. It turned out that it's, it's a bit more complicated, like everything in life. So the, in general, yes, you do get less likely over time if you average over people. But there are also times where people seem to sort of get it back together. Like if they actually towards the end, it seems like they suddenly notice they're close to the end. So they have another bout of energy. Right, right. Or so on. Cool. But, but yeah, when we also had these results where people just reported qualitatively, like they feel drained after doing a long and back test. And it's fine. I, I do personally believe that there is also a lot of this classical uh, willpower is not that important if you don't believe that it is. Mm, you think there's, there's merit to that? Well, it seems to be partly true and partly, I guess, you, th- there is uh, something that, that does drain. And it also seems to be trainable to some degree. I guess it's just one other reason not to spend too long doing things that don't give you much benefit. But, but there are many other reasons to not spend too long doing things that don't give you much benefit. Great, great. The cookie test you brought up, the experiment, rather, I think it was Ray Baumeister. Yeah, and actually one of the things really is the Stroop test, by the way. So this is a direct evidence. Ah, I understand, I understand. Could you explain what areas of quantified mind, where areas of the brain are you testing or what cognitive capabilities are you looking at? There are some tests that look at reaction times and, and speed directly. So there are a few reaction time tests and there's even a, a motor speed test. Uh, there's some visuospatial abilities, which... I'm going with a somewhat thematic order because these things are a little close to, to reaction times. There's a lot of uh, executive function and, and uh, working memory stuff. So you know, there's always the argument of whether working memory and short-term memory are the same thing or not. So there, there are things for both. <laughs> there's some verbal learning stuff, so more long-term learning. And yeah, th- this is the main emphasis. There have been other tests that people have put in. I mean, people who collaborated with me on studies like... Uh, Actually, emotion regulation and decision-making, but we didn't ever get a lot of data for those, so I, I didn't get to analyze their psychometric properties. But yeah, so mainly those things. I, I, I'd say the most rough division. Yeah. How do these relate to the people at home? Like, if they're thinking about working Mary and the executive function area, how is that going to impact their daily life? Right, so th- these are probably the most important ones, actually more important than speed. Probably speed would, would correlate to like what you'd think of as alertness or even energy, weakly correlate, right? And, and executive functions would more correspond to what people would think of as focus or attention or, or like really getting things done or even flow, I would dare say. Getting into flow. 
the yeah. ability to get into flow. And working okay. memory is the best correlate out of all of these things to intelligence in general. So I, I guess this would be like efficiency of, <laughs> of work. But again, these are all very rough uh, generalizations and making things interpretable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So to connect to the day-to-day -day is a little bit difficult. But working memory is basically roughly how many things you can keep in your mind. So I always thought, like, if you're solving some kind of puzzle or you're trying to make some kind of decision, if you can have, like, 10 variables in your mind, I think it's seven, right? The amount typical for, for working memory. But if you can basically play around with those things more in working memory, similar to a computer, has RAM, then it's easier to make decisions and more complex decisions. Yeah, exactly. And of course, every kind of work in modern life is full of uh, these, these multiple things that come at you and you have to manipulate them. I mean, even, I mean, writing code is one of the most obvious things that depend on working memory, right? Well, I think pretty much everything I can think of. When you're problem solving, I think that's very dependent on working memory. Is that correct? For most people at home, if they're like going about their jobs, like most jobs these days, basically it's troubleshooting, it's problem solving, it's uh, planning. Would you fit those into the kind of working memory area? Yeah, if we take into account that this is still a generalization and not a perfect uh, yeah, totally. Well, I like that you put the caveats out there. It's good. Yeah, sorry. I just, I just uh, got my PhD, so I have to be like an uber uh, careful scientific <laughs> person. No, that's, that's great. So in terms of the scientific validation between your tests, for the tests that you put up there, how strong is it? It's quite good. So to begin with, everything is uh, building on, on tests that have been very, very extensively used in the literature. That, that's how I selected them to begin with. But I also did many independent types of validation. First of all, reliability is extremely high. It was higher than, than I ever hoped to achieve. It, the, the basic result on reliability in this data shows that a one-minute test for almost all tests is sufficient to measure almost perfectly the skill which is being measured, which is great. The, and for validation, I looked at internal structure and external structure. So these mean how the tests relate to each other and that behavior supports completely psychometric theory and psychological theory. So that, that suggests that they're measuring the right thing. And the external variables also look exactly correct. So the same way we'd expect. There are extensive results on this. I, I am slowly working on, on a paper that hopefully will eventually bring all of these results uh, out. But for now, it, it looks really good. So everything that we would predict does seem to behave correctly. And then, of course, there are new results that we had no predictions about. So this gives us some confidence to believe in them. So when did this launch? And how many users have you had using the system so far? So this was early 2012. And it grew fairly linearly. So I never tried to get users, but it, it just happened. So that's nice. Uh, it grew fairly linearly. We have now over 40,000. I think most people, of course, don't take many tests. Right, right. They do a few and then disappear, I guess. And there were several jumps in the middle where you know, some event happened and then uh, a ton of people signed up overnight. Great. Do you know how many tests have been taken today? Yeah, so tests. So it would be something like half a million. I think I even computed the number of individual trials and it was something like 16 million or... Wow. I'm guessing you look at that. Do you sometimes look at that data to see if there's anything interesting that comes out on the averages or... So looking at aggregates, definitely that's the way to do psychometric analysis, right? So looking without looking at who's doing what and names of experiments, you can still look at relationships between tests and practice effects and complexity effects and... These are really interesting things, and even time of day, which is always there. I don't just look at people's data because that's a big invasion of privacy. Right. But there are cases where uh, researchers are designing experiments that are run on the platform. Then I give them some access rights, and then everyone who signs to that experiment specifically opts into having the data available only to that researcher. And often we do the data analysis together, so I do get to see a lot of cool stuff. And, and yeah, it looks like the, <laughs> these results are pretty encouraging. Like we, we definitely knew to begin with that the effect sizes to be expected in within-person variation would be rather small, but it's very nice to actually find them. Right, right. That's cool. So one of the things I'd like to make clear about this tool is basically that you've put, in order to do experiments, you've added the ability to add variables and there's some basic variables you've already added in yourself, like have I had coffee today, have I had chocolate today, these kind of things that you've tested for. So it enables us to control for different things and see if they're having an impact on us, on our, on our cognition and in, at the different test areas. Correct. 
So do a lot of people make use of, of that function? And you can see you can see the differences between, say, coffee and no coffee and, and things like that. And you're saying also the time of day. But by the way, do you track that with location? Right. So I'm in London right now, <laughs> for instance. Yeah. So I, oh, people who are moving around who don't update it in the time zone, I would lose that data. But I do drop, like, I, I don't take into account all the data from people who did not demonstrate that they were aware that a time zone field exists and need to be updated. So I only include people who explicitly changed their time zone at least once to make sure that at least that part will be roughly... So I'm right. gone. <laughs> and, you know, there were cool results with the time of day because I, I think no one has looked at the time of day effects simultaneously across a wide variety of tests. And I've done exactly this only a few weeks ago. I finally got to play around with this. It was kind of cool. So I, I, you can't actually look at a uniform effect of time of day because different people have different chronotypes, right? So there would be owls and larks and <laughs> all, all these other names. So instead of uniformly averaging across everyone, I, I used a non-parametric clustering algorithm to, to find uh, automatically from the data what are the clusters that we can see. It was really cool because you could definitely see that uh, almost all the people are worst at night. Mm. But... Definitely some people get this afternoon dip and some do not. Aha. And some people peak in the late morning, whereas some others actually slowly improve throughout the day and only collapse at late night. Mm. It, it was really cool to see this just emerge from the data itself with no prior assumptions. That's interesting because I can kind of make assumptions about those cases. You could probably too, but it, it's, it's speculation. But a lot of people get slight adrenal fatigue, so they get a bit more tired in the afternoon. I could imagine it would... It's said to affect cognitive. So it's, it's funny that your data's kind of pulled out those kind of scenarios, which would be very interesting. So what would be the minimal test? Because like we're talking about efficiency here and we talked about like how doing a lot of testing might reduce our willpower and have some kind of impact on our self-control during the day and some other impacts. So in terms of like someone who wants to do some tests and basically see where they are, like track some, they're not having cognitive decline or potentially looking at days they drink coffee versus not or some other tests. What would be the minimal test you could do once per day to track while experimenting like that? Yeah, I'd say even just one minute and pick one test or maybe two minutes and do this and that's it. So something like two back or three back are good tests that cover a wide variety. Like it's, it's mostly working memory, but you'd also get a component of speed in that. So if you do that, let's say you don't really need to measure speed separately with like choice reaction time or something like this. And uh, it's also valuable to put something like Stroop or, or what is called sorting on the unquantified mind. But definitely one to two minutes and no more. There's no need and it just reduces the likelihood of doing this many, many times, which is far more valuable than adding more tests to a single measurement. Right, right. So you could basically do this test once per day, control the variables, like, and it's basically a minute of your time to get potentially something useful. Yeah, or, or multiple times per day if you're looking at something that changes across the day. Or the effects of coffee uh, obviously are not constant across the day. Right, right, exactly. I know that you did a lot of tests in the past. I'm not sure if you're still doing a lot of tests with this on yourself. Are you? And what kind of discoveries have you made about yourself? Uh, that's interesting. So I, I definitely agree with what you said before about getting sick. Uh, fortunately, and I, this is like famous last words, that, that did not happen in quite a long time. <laughs> uh, I didn't get that data point. But uh, last time I measured this, the, the effect was huge. It was unbelievable. It was somewhat that I, I could compare this to, for myself, something like five days of pretty severe sleep deprivation. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Did <laughs> it's you, awful. Did you see kind of like a crash and then a, a slow recovery? You mean when getting better? Yeah, right. Like over the day, like it took, well, for me personally, it's like, Five days, seven days to kind of get back to baseline after the initial day when you fall sick. I mean, of course, it depends on the sickness, right? So it's a bit variable. I think the recovery was a bit faster, but you know, we probably had different things going on. But yeah, it was a very strong effect. I, I actually did a really cool, one of the strangest things I've, I've done on myself. So I like doing things that they, you know, also keep me engaged by, by their own right. So like experiment, which is not boring because it gets you to keep doing it. We had this funny discussion about a, a little odd result in the literature. There was, you, you may know this one, that glycogen depletion followed by a glycogen overcompensation, is what they called it, I think, results in a significant improvement in cognitive functions. And they did this on rats, and I think this was a long, long time ago. I may not get the details right, but I think they basically let them run to exhaustion till like the, rat, the poor rats is collapsed. And then they fed them a ton of sugar, like more than they needed to refill the glycogen. Right. And then killed them <laughs> and witnessed an abnormally huge amount of glycogen in their brains. 
And then they mm. hypothesized that this would also translate to a behavioral output. So I, I did this on, on my poor human self for like several days. <laughs> okay, so could you explain how you did that to yourself? <laughs> yeah, so with, without the killing part. So a, a lot of exercise, I think, that was also a good excuse to get myself back into exercising. So it was uh, a lot of like cardio and then some weightlifting. Just what, whatever, I, I read what you're supposed to do to do some glycogen depletion. Uh, so a lot of many, many, many sets with relatively low weights. That seemed, at least by, by subjective experience of wanting to die, it seemed to do the job. And then trying to do some calculations of what exactly would be the glycogen overcompensation and then take cognitive tests about several hours later. I don't remember the exact numbers. It was a few years ago, but it was uh, some hypothesis based on a minimal amount of existing data. And that, that seemed to work great. Uh, it's totally not worth it. It's like brain training, but it definitely got some of the highest scores I've ever seen in my life. Cool. That sounded like a huge effort, actually. That sounded like it was a couple of days or to do that. Yeah. So it's totally did it like five times, but it was pretty significant. And I, I I mean, this is definitely not something that I want to do in life, and it's not worth it to get this benefit, but it was just interesting. Like Again, this is the kind of thing that you want to know or you want to test, and if there is some open question, why not just settle it with science? Right, right. And who knows, if you had a really, really difficult decision to make or like some kind of planning session or something like that, you, oh, you might want to do that as a one-off to solve that life decision that you have or... Oh, yeah, it's true. Oh. Or, or if you have an exam at uh, 3 p.m. or something and, and you decide to waste your time on doing this this crazy stuff instead of studying, <laughs> you might at least know that you'll be quite pumped up when you get there. What other experiments have you done that have had some kind of significant impact? Are there any that you feel like you've integrated into your life because they're worthwhile? Because the, the time expense for actually doing these things isn't too much to get some kind of benefit. Uh, the biggest impact one is time of day, and I think that would apply to a lot of people because you really don't need to do strange uh, manipulations and interventions for this. So just design design the activities that you do such that they fit with your natural rhythms. I'm currently at the point where I am way more productive in the early parts of the day, so I'd leave all of the stuff that doesn't require too much mental power to the later parts of the day. But that's that's a very easy one. And an interesting one that we've seen, that's that's not on me, but an actual study that was done quite recently was that the effects of temperature are not what people would expect. <laughs> so we, we measured, uh, which is also a little consistent with existing literature, but there's not that much existing literature on this. So we, this was a great study. It was several hundred subjects and everything was perfectly controlled in terms of temperature and humidity. They did all the practice stuff perfectly. So... The data was very, very clean and very, very good. And it showed that people do not actually predict correctly when they function at their best. So most people would report being more comfortable at a slightly lower temperature than the temperature at which their brains worked the best behaviorally. This seemed like a little counterintuitive, but I looked into this and it turns out that this is actually consistent with results that were previously known, but I think we brought a, a better resolution to this question. It's always interesting when it goes against our own sense of well-being, right? As you're saying, right, it's a little bit less comfortable, a little bit hotter than maybe we feel is, is comfortable is what when we're working best. I was also wondering if, if you think that a lot of people might try to guess their rhythm during the day. I've always been a morning person and I've always told people I'm a morning person, right? Over time, I think I've got some more, more stamina um, now so I can work for longer periods. I can work maybe like 10, 12 hours and I don't feel so bad if I'm not doing it too many times a week. But so basically people should kind of test this kind of thing w with the test. But would you expect them like in, in anecdotally, if you mean speaking to people about their time uh, stamp tests and it, does it kind of reflect what they thought? That's interesting. I think most people have a good sense of this, especially people who are workaholics because they, they actually try to use their brain at all times of the day, so they really discover what it's like. And of course, you mix in all kinds of effects, like uh, obviously you get a little tired just by doing uh, mentally exerting work, so it's not a perfectly controlled study, right? Because then you would just have to like be lazy the whole day and see if you still function not quite as good in, in the night. But most people don't do this, and they I think are kind of accurate. There aren't that many people who have shared their results with me or, or given me access to their data explicitly. But there's at least one person who who said that it was actually he did, he did change his routine based on these results because he he used to I think leave a lot of intellectually engaging work for the evening and it turns out his results were very strong to bias towards uh, morning strength. 
And so he moved everything around and moved, for example, his, his physical workouts to the evening because he found that he didn't need much willpower to get started. So he would still do the workouts and didn't feel that it's, it matters too much if he lifts a little bit less weight because that also, of course, changes <laughs> during the day. And it might not be correlated to. So that was a, a cool example of chaining things accordingly. And that's really, again, that's the easiest experiment to do, right? You don't need an intervention at all. You just get the data. Yeah, great, great. Are there academic studies you can talk about that have been done with the quantified mind? Because I know some of them are restricted. Yeah, it's true. So there are a lot going on. There's always someone somewhere doing yet another kind of coffee study, which is funny, but it's, it's nice because it always works. Let's talk about coffee because I think, did you do a bulletproof coffee study? I think that was, was that where it was done? Because that's not really academic, but it, it was a study. Yeah. It had a problems of, uh, so the, it was definitely not blind and there was a selection effect, right? A huge selection right. bias. Just for the people at home, that means that the people had opted in because they like Bulletproof Coffee, basically. Yeah, they were actually recruited through the Bulletproof Coffee website. Right, instead of being randomly given Bulletproof Coffee. Yeah, and, and this in combination with not being blind means that the placebo effect would be huge, right? Because you, you're exactly telling the people who would believe that this would work on them, that they are currently <laughs> under the condition that would work for them. Having said that, the result was more, more interesting than, than just a pure monotonic improvement. So like Bulletproof Coffee had this, the component of the coffee and the butter, right? So even in our data, butter had zero effect, but coffee had a large effect. And this means coffee, like Bulletproof compared to Starbucks, not Bulletproof compared to no coffee, which would obviously have an effect. Okay, right. In the quality of the coffee, basically, or something about the coffee... It was better. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Or, or the placebo. Of the right, coffee, right, right. The, the fact that uh, people were using the bulletproof versus the other. Yeah, that's it. That's cool. Well, in coffee in general, because everyone thinks, of course, that we're performing better when we're on coffee. You certainly feel good. I've had an interesting, because when I started using this tool, I thought coffee would make a difference. I'm, I'm drinking bulletproof coffee in the mornings because I feel like it gives me a ton of energy and so on. So I've been doing that for a long time. And um, I found that it makes no difference <laughs> to my score so far. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm, Even when you are slightly sleep deprived? Well, I sleep, I really make an effort to sleep well. So I wouldn't say that I'm, today maybe is the only day in a long time that I didn't sleep great. And I know why that is. It's because I took a, a few things yesterday, but that doesn't really happen to me that I'm sleep deprived. So is, is that the one situation where coffee has the biggest impact? You've seen that? Yeah. So the, the literature definitely shows this, that the effects of coffee are, I think there is still evidence to suggest they exist in, in non-sleep deprived individuals, but those are actually very rare in modern society. It's great that you take care of yourself and I wish everyone did the same, but definitely the literature shows that the more sleep deprived you are, the more difference coffee would make. There's this famous study with, with Marines or Navy or SEALs or something like this, where they showed that, that even the effect of the dose keeps improving up to 300 milligrams, which seemed like a gigantic dose to me. That was still better than 200. Wow. So for the people at home, how much, how many coffees is that? It would be like five espressos, right? Wow. I, I'm wow. not a huge mm. coffee expert, but I, I think that sounds right. So yeah, this was still better than 200, right? Okay. Yeah. So I think it depends. But in, in general, whenever you use something chemical, even if it's coffee and it's kind of safe and it's, it's not that bad and it feels nice, you're still playing with stuff that we don't fully understand. I do firmly believe that if you can first improve your life by sleeping better, then this is a, a better approach to do than optimizing coffee intake. Right, right. I think one of the interesting things about this is when you feel good, you do more work and you take on, like I find personally, you tend to take on more bigger tasks and things like that. And what I would say is like, I, I think coffee, I don't know if I'm an addict, <laughs> coffee makes me feel good. And so I think I do more, but that wouldn't necessarily show up in a cognitive test that I know of. Is that correct? Uh, it might show in an indirect way, if only by showing that you did more tests. Because this is a big effect when you're not actually in a controlled study, right? You could just decide you don't feel like taking the test now, and that would usually show that you're a little weak on willpower or something like this. So we talk, you were saying it would show up for sleep-deprived people. So have you seen that coffee makes quite a, a big impact on people in general through the aggregate data? So basically then you would be saying like a lot of people are sleep-deprived through taking a test to some degree. Well, so first of all, you, you can never know. <laughs> you can know if you ask every single person and you, if you believe all their answers, but that's definitely not the case in an internet-based testing environment. Uh, coffee does definitely seems to have a real effect in aggregate. It is not huge. I think it's sort of the order of magnitude of, of time of day variations. 
And then, of course, there's this correlation, right, that most people would consume coffee at a specific time of day. So these are confounded. Right. A lot of people have it in the morning. And as you're saying, a lot of people, because of the time, and that's when they're going to be performing better. But we are now actually doing, uh, this is happening like this last week and this week. There's a collaborator at Harvard who's doing uh, an in-lab coffee study with Quantified Mind. So we've done a million coffee studies, but this is probably the, the most rigorous one. So they actually bring everyone to the lab and they randomize them. They don't tell them what coffee they're getting and they did the practice before and they, they have a crossover design. So hopefully we'll, we'll see something. Great. So when these uh, studies are published, do you list them on the site or you put references somewhere? Uh, I would. <laughs> I don't think anything has been published in a journal yet because all of this stuff is fairly new in academic publishing. You know, it takes years and years. There have been things that I didn't list that have been published informally, you know, like it's a student did a project and submitted it and it was approved. Like the, they have a PDF somewhere. I guess I should look into <laughs> putting some more of those. Okay, great. So are there any other tactics that you've seen, like in, I don't know, whether it's the number of hours slept or, or, or anything else that you've seen that people could think about testing? If you had a priority list of tests worthwhile doing for people, experiments to see if it helps improve their cognitive uh, capacities a bit, which ones would you list if you were starting from scratch? Which would be the top five you would start with? Having seen what you've seen, they might have some kind of potential uplift. Right. So I think this should be very individualized and people should start with their biggest suspect for, for not what might make them better, but rather what might make them worse. Because these things have a much larger effect in practice. For example, someone who is gluten sensitive would see a much stronger decline by consuming gluten than someone who you know just takes piracetam or something to try to be a little bit better so in, in general effects of improving over the healthy well-functioning baseline are much smaller than effects of fixing something that's broken i guess a, a lot of people do have some things that are they're sensitive to or that are broken in in some weak sense right like someone who's chronically sleep deprived you could say that something is broken in their lifestyle and of course, that's just not a moral judgment, but it just says that they might be able to see a larger improvement by fixing this. And if they know that there is something they suspect, like if someone suspects all kinds of food sensitivities, seems to be a very common one, or even allergies, pathogens, anything like this that they feel hurts them, it will be useful to try to tease exactly what it is using, you know, factorial designs and cognitive testing and so on to fix this. The other thing, I, I find it cool that a lot of people are actually using this to really track their aging process. So this takes a lot of discipline to repeatedly you know, take a test once a month, for example, for years and years. But this is admirable when people are doing this and it can maybe give you serious suggestions to when you, you, your, your brain is no longer that of a very young person and you should start taking more care of yourself. Because you know, when you're young, you can get away with much more. So that, that seems also useful. And I think sleep's one of the ones that most people are guilty of. I've been guilty of it for, for a very long, long time, especially like driven workaholic kind of people. We just don't want to sleep. Have you seen any like number of hours? A lot of those tests ask you for the, 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 the standard ones I've been doing, ask you for the number of hours you've slept the night before. I've certainly noticed straight away, for instance, today, because I slept six and a half hours, it, it was lower. So for me, that's low. Normally I'm seven and a half hours. Have you noticed anything in terms of the number of hours slept that you see some dips and dives or anything like that? Yeah, so it seems, so again, this is, there is not that much data. And, and again, I don't look into people's data. So this is only people who ask me to look at their data and conversations we've had and so, so on, which filters a lot. But the most interesting result I can remember is that it seemed we actually did see like a skip one day effect where the strongest effect would be with a delta of one day, which was also interesting because I, one, one person also shared a result with me that suggested that it was the same with drug use. So you're saying it, there's a lag effect, so it hits you the day after? There's mm -hmm. a lag effect, mm -hmm. yeah. And it seems to be, you know, it's, it's hard to say if it's like exactly two days, but it seems that the effect uh, when skipping a, a day was stronger than, than the next Okay, of course, I'm going to have to ask you about nootropics because it's one of the biggest topics right now. You mentioned pyrocetam and of course there's many others. Have you got any anecdotal effects? Anecdotally, have you been, like, got any information from at all about people like taking nootropics and getting any benefits based on the test results? Yeah, a little bit. So people seem to like modafinil, which is... Ah. You know, that's, that's a strong one. It is, yeah. And you never know. Like I, I mean, even you've seen the one where Dave goes on Nightline and talks about modafinil. Uh, yeah, that was quite a while ago, right? Yeah, yeah there's, so there's like 
a minute there when they talk about quantified mind and the experiment he was doing. So it's uh, I trust him. He says he got a strong result. But of course, one should always be careful when, for example, here's a study design that I don't like. You you start you take modafinil, you you do cognitive testing, you get your scores, then you stop taking modafinil for a week and get back on it, and you see that your scores during that week were much worse. This is controlling for practice, so that's fine. But the the problem here is that you could you might as well just show that you became addicted to modafinil. You don't actually know if this performance on modafinil is better than what you had before you started. You just know that now it hurts you to get off it. So this, I, I don't think people control for. Right. The other thing is people talk about, modafinil kind of feels like you're running um, like high-speed gear or something, and you get a lot done that day. But um, I wonder if, you know, maybe the days after you could like pay for it with slightly lower cognitive capacities as is when you come off it you're basically kind of catch up or something like that right this is the borrowing from your future self right right basically there's that thing i guess you'd have to control for too yeah it, it would be great i guess to have some either more controlled study or, or some more centralized resource of, of good practices when designing those studies it is definitely something to look into and might be you know i asked before about points for improvement or, <laughs> For the future, but definitely, like self experiments are limited by by the fact that this is complicated and not complicated in an intractable way, but complicated in a way which just in practice most people don't take into account because it takes a lot of experience and thinking about these things. You mean to set up a proper experiment? Yeah. So, for example, uh, the effects you just described, or the, these lag effects, and <laughs> great. Do you have any future plans to expand the functionality of quantified mind or run? Like you said, there's quite. it sounds like there's quite a few academic projects starting to run with it. Yeah, so this is great. Now, I got a count quite recently since I put it on some presentation. It was around 30 that are either being done or have been concluded and, and they're either a stage of planning a follow-up or writing up or, or just kept for internal use or something like this. So I definitely want to figure out what, what gives researchers the most value and how we can improve that and, and provide that. I do want to also make uh, you know, users who are not researchers happier, but that's a slightly lower priority simply because it has a lower impact on the overall progress of science. Sure. Which sounds sounds very pompous, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I hate saying things like this. But, but it is like in the end about impact, and and I do think that that it will help more in the longer run if we have more general human knowledge about. Uh, even individual variations, right? But like the effects of things that we just don't really know right now. And when people just learn something and, and they, they are the only ones who gain knowledge, it's kind of a small impact. All right, I understand. So if, if people wanted to learn more about this, where should someone look first if they wanted to learn a little bit more about, um, we're talking layman terms here. I don't know if you'd have good references like presentations or books or anything like that, where people could learn more about cognitive, basically testing and assessment and just kinds of basically the kinds of tests that you have on the quantified mind. That is a great question. You're right in uh, predicting that I don't often think about uh, how to present information in layman terms. I guess we still have the science page on Quantified Mind, which is a kind of readable, maybe even too readable because people might not get enough information. There is my, <laughs> I don't know, this, this is a little silly, but there is my thesis, which has uh, like two entire chapters about this, and it's probably also not very readable. It's also not published yet. So I guess the science page would be a place to start and for specific questions everyone's always encouraged to to write to me and it's, it's always fun to talk about cognitive testing and so on well great what are the best ways for people to connect with you are you on like twitter uh quantified mind where are you most active the contact page on quantified mind is a is a good way i'm not a social media person is there anyone besides yourself you'd recommend to learn more about cognitive testing or like running experiments with cognitive testing that is a good question. I know some people who are local and you you, know, you meet them in all kinds of uh, conferences and so on. I, I don't know if there's one resource. I mean, definitely Lumosity is, is not bad because even though the, the main tool is a commercial game product, but I actually have a large group of, of people who are more into the data analysis and, and resources. You know, they, they publish all their results in a human-readable form as well on, on their blog, which is good practice. So that's that's nice to look at. There's the Human uh, Something Cognition Project, which is an, an attempt to uh, give more researchers access to this data and to generate more results. And yeah, and of, of course, today all the papers in Science and Nature also have like uh, popular uh, interpretations. All right, great. Thank you for those.
Now, just a little bit about you and what, what you're doing these days. Are you tracking any of your metrics or biomarkers like blood or, or cognitive tests or anything like that on a routine basis? Uh, not really. I, I My habits are that I start tracking something when I think there is something to learn and I insist on not tracking it anymore when I'm not learning anymore. This is nice because sometimes you discover that you can predict, you, you just know all kinds of things that you didn't know before. Like you can know, you know your heart rate, you don't need to measure it, right? You, you, I'm sure you experienced this after years of, of doing this, this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it seems to be true for a lot of measurements. I wouldn't say that I can predict cognitive performance because that has the, that funny property, which is why we need this, that uh, you, as your brain changes, its ability to predict itself also changes accordingly. So that's why you have these wrong conceptions. So this I would still use, but I want an, an important question to have when doing this. Right, right. Yeah, it sounds like you basically do little projects on something you're interested in and then you kind of move on. And, and you're saying that basically build self-awareness by doing these things with each one so you can kind of tell yourself where you're at. Also, yeah, that's exactly right. There, there is a time cost and there is an effort cost in tracking anything. So you'll never track everything. So might as well make it, make sure that you track the things that count. And what are the biggest changes you've made in your behavior over the years with experiments, if any? Yeah, I probably realize uh, that sh I'm not actually built for short-term rewards, like uh, all, all kinds of things that that seem that pe normal people call fun. I don't find them fun. And that uh, I don't find them useful. And for my longer term happiness, like the things that make me the most satisfied are, are gener like creating value, like being productive, uh, learning and developing. So with time, I guess I put much more of an emphasis on, on really building my future self and not so much about like doing satisfying things in the short term. Great, because you find that satisfying as well. Yeah, so, so there are two things, right? It's, it sounds like that you find same way it makes you happy the same way yeah and, and data can help you reach that conclusion in two ways right one one is when you do this sort of like uh, not very precise but i try to make uh those subjective measures as precise as possible by just breaking them down to so many individual categories that can be scored and then getting numbers that do mean something but also just in the sense that if you are actually tracking things that matter to you in the short term and you're witnessing their anti-correlation with things that are <laughs> that they're supposed to be short-term rewarding as opposed to long-term benefits, then this is, this is a good way of, of actually making change, right? Because you, you can't deny from yourself a change that you can see in the numbers. I guess this was a very abstract thing, so I'll try to make it more concrete. If you are tracking your fitness and you notice that as you're not paying that much attention to your sleep, it goes down, this hurts. Like if you know I lifted this much weight a few months ago and I can't reach that anymore, it really sucks. And this makes you change some things. And to me, the, those health things, those, those performance-related metrics, have a huge impact in making me change behavior. All right, so uh, last question. What would be your number one recommendation, we ask us of everyone, to someone trying to use data to make better decisions to improve any aspect of their health performance or longevity? Just something about themselves. Well, so there are many aspects of using data. So definitely one of them is make sure that they are collecting the right kind of data and in, in a consistent way, which, which makes for a valid experiment. But also not try to overdo it. I've seen so many people just fail because they've tried to do too much and got lost in the details or in the process itself. Like focus on the highest value thing at a time and do it properly and win, like really win and then move on. Right. With the minimal effort, right? Yeah, passive tracking is great. Uh, well, I would say people do a lot of effort into tracking and getting data, but then don't do the minimal effort in just learning data analysis. Some people who still don't uh, actually don't feel that comfortable playing with raw data, I feel it's worth learning for almost everyone because it's not that complicated. Thanks. That's a great, great point. Have you got a tip? Where would you start? Would it be using Excel statistical correlation or what would be the first thing someone could try that would add a lot of value? Yeah, even that is not bad. But if, if you're at the point where you get all kinds of weird files from, from tools, then Excel won't help you. With this, and you, you can't always load giant data into Excel. So I'd, I would suggest like try to learn Python or R. These are not so complicated and extremely powerful. And of course, this day there are so many tutorials. Like all, all of this stuff is very easy.
with with some reasonable effort. But people who can learn to play guitar can can also learn to use Python. Right, that's it. It seems really, really complicated when you look at programming languages, but I've done a bit of programming in my time and I'm not a programmer at all, I'm a business guy. But yeah, you, it looks much worse than it is, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, and, and also doing some, like trying to answer a very concrete question about your data is very different than like building uh, Gmail or something. You're not building it, it's not programming in the sense of building giant tools. Yeah, yeah. It's really doing some something very, very specific. There would be like 50 lines of code maybe if, if it's kind of complicated and involves reading files and stuff. But you, you just want to generate your graphs the way you like them and then throw out some, some bad data points and maybe combine data sources from them. Like the, it's very hard to use some general tools that, that shield you away from programming. And often you get to a level of complexity which is akin to actual scripting. Well, Yoni, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Really enjoyed talking to you about all of these and setting some some of the science uh, straight and what we can't really look at and decide that's going to work or not. So thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. This was great. And then I uh, admire what you're doing. So good luck with all of that. To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at verquantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.